Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 22, verses 35 to 54. If you want to follow along, you'll find it on page 858 in your Bibles. Please join me now first for prayer. Now, Lord, without the healing of our spirits and our inner eyes, we cannot see. Without the healing of our ears and hearts, we cannot hear and understand. So touch us afresh, we pray. Grant to Pastor Mike the words that you've laid on his heart. And let our hearts respond, O Lord, to what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he said to them, When I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, No, not a thing. He said to them, But now, the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted amongst the lawless. And indeed, that is what was written about me, and it is being fulfilled. And they said, Lord, look. Here are two swords. And he replied, it's enough. Then he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. While he was speaking... Suddenly a crowd came, and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. 
Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who would come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not, hand me, you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. This is the word of the Lord. Sylvia has copies of the manuscript if anyone wants to follow along, and there will be some slides projected also. They're named in the manuscript. Friends of Jesus Christ, maybe of all the things you can see, the hardest thing to see is the way you see. Does that make sense? It's like seeing your own glasses. If you wear glasses, then everything you see, you see through your glasses, but you don't really see your glasses. They're too close. They come between you and the rest of the world, and they can color how you look at the rest of the world. The pun is intentional. You don't really see your glasses. One of the functions of art is to let you see the world from inside another person's experience. can even let you see yourself from inside another person's experience. And art can be sort of like a mirror that lets you see the world from that other person's point of view and see yourself and maybe even make you more critically aware of your own point of view and the way you Look at the world. Matthew's piece of art, Fight Back, does that for me. It lets me see the world. It lets me see myself. It lets me see my point of view from his point of view. I share some things with Matthew. Common point of view, we're both male. We're both Christian. But the differences matter too. I'm 61. He's 22. I'm white. He's African-American. That makes his experience different from my experience. And it makes me think about how my experience affects the way I see everything. I've been paying a lot more attention these days to the art of African Americans. This piece called Stop Shooting by Claire Embill was one of the pieces in this year's Race and Faith events. Claire is a UW student. She's a Christian. She's an African-American woman. And this image expresses her point of view. So I'm looking. I'm listening. I'm listening to the voices of artists and writers from a community that I don't really know, but that I'm getting to know through its intellectual and spiritual 
and artistic leaders through the eyes and minds of people like Howard Thurman, Martin Luther King Jr., through artists and creative writers like William Melvin Kelly, James Baldwin, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and my friend Matthew. And it's changing the way I look at the world and the way I see myself. This is reshaping the way I think of my two most important citizenships, my two most active citizenships, my citizens, citizenship in the United States and my citizenship, the one that's more important to me, in the kingdom of God. And all of this is making me alert to the ghosts of violence that haunt the history of this country and the history of the church in this country. But history sounds like something that is locked away in the past, forever gone, no longer with us. Slavery and segregation are behind us now, right? Locked away in history. The best face you could put on an observation like that is that it's incredibly naive. It could even be willful denial. The same spirits of violence are with us in our country and in our churches today. I see tweets by evangelical Christian leaders supporting the violent disruption of families and the deportation of parents, the separation of children from their parents, breaking up families who've never known any other homeland. And I see flag-waving, cross-wearing Christians celebrating this as an act of justice. Time magazine, of all things, seems to have a clearer moral perspective than some of my sisters and brothers in Christ. This is on the newsstands today, the March 19th issue of Time. I don't know how well you can see it, but if you do any grocery shopping in the next few days, take a look at it. Then there are shootings upon shootings upon shootings in the schools, yeah, in the streets too, and in backyards. This past week, another, yes, another unarmed black man was shot by police officers. I don't even know if they were white police officers. I didn't read that in any of the stories. I don't know if he was committing a crime. I do know that he was unarmed, that he was shot at maybe 20 times, most of those times after he was already helpless on the ground. I watched the video, and no medical assistance was offered for five minutes. How do we feel about this? I don't know how to feel. I feel for everybody. I feel for Stephen Clark's family. I did some bad things when I was a kid, too, before I was a Christian. I might have been chased into a backyard by police officers. I don't have a criminal record because I didn't get caught doing some of those bad things. I feel for the officers and their families. I don't know what it's like to chase a man into a dark backyard. I feel maybe as much as for anyone, for Daniel Hahn, the African-American police chief of the city of Sacramento and how he's caught up in this whole nexus of violence that holds our country, our armed-to-the-teeth country, in its grip. How can we not talk about these kinds of things? How could we just shrug them off and move on with our lives and business as usual? How can we not 
need to do something. But what? And maybe some of you are wondering, what does any of this have to do with Palm Sunday and the passage that we just heard? So let me go there. And please come with me and give me a chance to make the connection. Some churches call this Passion Sunday, not Palm Sunday. Passion means suffering. And the suffering we're talking about is the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're definitely on the right page of Scripture for this part of the church year that we're in, heading into Good Friday, where we really reflect on the suffering of Jesus and Easter where we celebrate his victory over sin and death and evil. But here, Jesus is on his knees in the garden, ready to drink the bitter cup of suffering, about to submit himself to the violent spirits of this world and to the power of darkness that he names. We heard the beginning of the story this morning. We heard it from the Gospel of Luke, which has its own kind of narrative art. Remember, art lets us experience things from another person's point of view. Luke's Gospel is art. As Luke tells the story, it's clear that in the background, in the whole picture, are the same kinds of violent spirits that we've already named this morning. They're everywhere present in the story of Christ's passion. The spirit of the powerful state is waiting to subject the king of kings to the machinery of its justice system. Justice is a word that states use a lot. But the rulers of this world are usually more interested in order than in justice. Judicial systems tend to preserve order, mainly for the sake of of vested interests for the sake of those who have lots of wealth and lots of power. And the Roman state was like that. If anyone resisted the Roman state or disrupted its order, the cross was there to make an example of that person. States use violence to maintain order. There are other violent spirits in the story, though. There's the spirit of violence in the religious leaders who sell their souls to the state for the sake of the little piece of the world that they controlled. You see that spirit of violence in the chief priests and the elders and their temple police as they come to arrest Jesus with swords and clubs. You see it in Judas who betrays his own master. These people are willing to hand over a person who's perfectly wise and good and completely nonviolent teachings they've heard, whose miraculous healings they've seen with their own eyes because he threatens their control. He will not submit to their authority. He will not further their ambitions. And the spirit of violence even overshadows the closest followers of Jesus as they literally and completely misunderstanding what he meant, take up the sword and inflict violence on the high priest's slave, a person who's already disadvantaged, already the victim of injury and violence. I don't know if you've ever thought about the high priest's slave as anything more than a prop in this passion drama. 
Have you ever tried to imagine yourself into his life or to experience this story from his point of view? Luke lets us do that. He was a slave, and slave is the right translation, not servant. This wasn't a day job. This wasn't a job he could walk away from. He probably would have preferred not to be there. He didn't have a choice. He would certainly have preferred not to be a slave. The slavery of that time and that place was not as brutal as slavery in America was. There were no open slave markets. People weren't usually kidnapped into slavery as they were in the American slave trade. At the time of Jesus, people usually became slaves by selling themselves into slavery, almost always because of crippling debt. And if they couldn't make their way out of those circumstances, if they couldn't earn enough to pay off their debts, they became slaves for life. As long as they were slaves, they were property. They had no rights. Luke doesn't tell us all of that because his readers would have known it, but Luke is an amazing artist. He has his own way of letting us see these events through the slave's eyes, even if the slave doesn't have a speaking part because he probably didn't say anything in the story. But notice one detail in the story. The disciple who swung the sword cut off his right ear probably all seen enough CSI type of shows that you can say, aha, his right ear. That means we're dealing with a left-handed swordsman. Or else, it means he was hit from behind. I've been showing you for most of this sermon the arrest of Jesus by the French painter Gérard Dufay. But I think an earlier Flemish painter, Derek Bouts, even though everyone in his version of it looks like someone who lived in Flanders in the 15th century instead of Palestine in the 1st century. But you can see down on the lower left as you look, there's Peter swinging the sword at a cowering slave, trying to ward off the sword, hitting him from behind, hitting a person who didn't see it coming, who probably didn't have any way of defending himself. This is about as close as you can find to an innocent bystander in the passion narratives. He's not there by choice. He has no power. He's the one that gets hurt. Of course, Jesus gets hurt too. And even on his way into that, in the midst of his own crisis, even as he was about to take the first sips, from the most bitter cup that anyone, anywhere, ever has drunk or ever will drink, even as he's about to enter the agony of a much, much deeper suffering. Jesus took pity on the victim of violence, touched the slave with his own hands in a personal way, healed him. Jesus connects to the slave on a deeper level than he connects to anyone else in the passage that we read this morning. As Jesus himself prepares to submit to the world's violence, he heals a fellow victim of that violence. That's a powerful moment. As far as I know, this is the only time that Jesus healed someone who was the victim of violence. It's the only one I can think of in the Gospels. In that same moment, Jesus very clearly repudiates violence as a way of accomplishing God's purposes. He rebukes his disciples saying, no more of this. 
Like, stop immediately. It's clear that that was not what he meant when he told his disciples that they'd need to sell their cloaks and buy swords. At the end of this story, there's another poignant moment that I think we have to understand sort of artistically, sort of metaphorically. Jesus is being led away into the high priest's house, and Peter is following at a distance. Peter, who, as we know from John's gospel, was actually the one who swung the sword, was probably more confused in this moment than he ever was in his whole life. So what did Jesus mean when he told his disciples that they would need swords from now on? Let's go back to the beginning of this morning's passage. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for all the ways that their lives were about to change as he and they got sucked into the world's violence. He's trying to prepare them for the way their mission was about to change. He reminds them about that time that probably seemed long ago now when he sent them out on their first mission. They took nothing and they lacked nothing. But now things are about to get much harder. And in the parallel passage to the one we read this morning, in Matthew's Gospel, this is the point where Jesus says these words that I think will be familiar to you. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. Jesus didn't mean that his disciples had to start thinking of themselves as soldiers or as jihadists or as the Christian version of the temple police. He meant that from that moment, the world would be against them. He meant that they would have to be prepared for many hardships. He meant that they would need to be in it for the long haul. Take a purse, take a bag, sell your cloak, and buy a sword. Was Jesus being literal? Does living that out today mean that we need to get a bunch of cash and pack a bag and sell our coats and buy some guns? Is Jesus saying that we need to become violent because the world is violent? And is that what Matthew means? I mean, this Matthew, Matthew Bogart, when he says we got to fight back, is that what you mean? Do we have to buy guns? It's not the way to follow Jesus. It's not what Jesus means. He's not calling us to be violent. In fact, quite the opposite. If we want to follow Jesus, if we want to be like Him, the way to do that is to suffer what we need to suffer for His sake, but also to heal whatever we're able to heal to the extent that He gives us the power to do that. He gives us the calling to do that, not just to suffer, but to heal, and certainly not to tell other people that they just have to suck up their suffering. There's no room in his kingdom for inflicting suffering on other people or for condoning the suffering of other people in his name or for any other reason. Even if the world is violent, it's the peacemakers he blesses. It's the peacemakers, he says, will be called the children of God. That doesn't mean you don't have to fight against the violence of the world. But how do we do that? Where do we start? How can we bring light into this dark world when we ourselves are often as confused as Peter and the other disciples? How do we bring peace into a world that seems to touch everything with violence, even the church 
of Jesus Christ. My instinct, and don't think for one minute I imagine I'm saying everything there is to say about this, but my instinct is that the place to start, to start the healing, is in the church. We need to heal the wounds here in the body of Christ between our fellow Christians before we can do any good in the world. We need to connect more deeply with Jesus, the same Jesus who had compassion on a victim of violence so that we can be a healing presence in the world, not a hurting presence in the world. That would be a good place to start. I found some help, kind of stumbled onto this as I was thinking about this passage, from one of our church's confessions, the Belhar Confession. I think the Belhar Confession is a great gift to us. It comes out of suffering, specifically the suffering of the black Reformed churches of South Africa. It's written during the time of apartheid, the South African version of the segregation that used to be the law in this country too. And to me, the most remarkable thing about the Belhar, of many remarkable things, is the spirit of Christian reconciliation that its authors extended to people, the very people, who were making them suffer, who also named the name of Jesus like they did, but who condoned their suffering as God's will. The Belhar Confession offers a beautiful framework, I think, not just a theological one, but a practical one to pursue healing exactly in the light of Christ's redemptive work as a way of bearing faithful witness to the work of Jesus, to the whole world and living it out in practice. So I'm just going to share three of the Belhar Confession's most important affirmations with you. This is what our church teaches. We believe that Christ's work of reconciliation is made manifest in the church as the community of believers who have been reconciled with God and with one another. My little footnote, through the suffering of our Lord Jesus. Second point, this is right after it in the confession, and these are in order. That unity is, therefore, both a gift and an obligation for the church of Jesus Christ. That through the working of God's Spirit, it is a binding force, yet simultaneously a reality which must be earnestly pursued and sought, one which the people of God must continually be built up to attain. Third point, that this unity must become visible, read real, so that the world may believe that separation, enmity, and hatred between people and groups is sin, which Christ has already conquered, and accordingly that anything which threatens this unity may have no place in the church and must be resisted. I especially appreciate the idea that unity is both a gift and already an already present blessing to enjoy and a calling, a not yet realized hope to keep pursuing until love rules. Wasn't that a phrase from Fight Back? Until love rules. If we can get this right in the church, then maybe there's hope for the world. That's our calling. Let's get that right. So I don't have all the answers. What I have is a broken heart and a willingness to listen to people whose hearts might be more broken 
almost certainly are more broken than mine. And to do that patiently. And I mean patiently. Because one of the temptations when we start talking unity and reconciliation is that someone says something that another person doesn't like and we all retreat into our cylinders of anger and guilt and privilege and everything else. We need to listen patiently. If someone says to us, check your privilege, that doesn't mean you're bad. That might just mean maybe you need to take your sunglasses off. If someone says to you, fight back, that doesn't mean I want to kill you. I mean, something's wrong here. and Somebody needs to do something about it. When someone says things that challenge us, let's not take them personally. But let's take them to heart. Above all, let's take the gospel to heart. Let's take the work that Jesus came to do to end sin and to end violence and to end the wrong in the world to heart. Let's seek the heart of Jesus. It's ironic to me that the one phrase that almost kept the Belhar from being adopted by our church is the phrase that God is in a special way the God of the poor and the oppressed. And if this story tells us anything, it tells us that Jesus, the heart of Jesus, goes out to the poor, to the oppressed, to the victims of violence, to those who suffer. The ear of the Lord is attentive to the cry of the poor. That's the word of the Lord. Can you say thanks be to God to that? Can you pray with me? Our words, Father, can be just words. Your Son's words were so thoroughly a part of His being that He drank the cup you gave Him to drink. And He placed into our hands the same cup and the same calling. And we pray, Father, for the sake of his suffering, for the sake of all of the purposes for which he gave his life, that you would pour out the spirit of courageous reconciliation, of loving attention to those who suffer, and of devotion to healing and true justice and the reconciliation of all things that you call us to be perpetrators of in this violent world. Lord, have mercy. Let's all say that. Lord, have mercy.